if you want to be a good basketball player, there's a lot of universities you can go to. Um, but uh, what I think we do really well is we create transformational experiences through the game of basketball. And that we want them to be different long after the ball goes flat. We want them to be able to look back and go, remember when we did this? Remember when I experienced this? And, and our goal as a staff is to create... Do you like the new beginning to our podcast? A soundbite from one of our guests before this introduction? Yeah. I do too. This is Adashina Korki, and once again, you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, episode number 35 in your ear right now. Before I go any further, I hope all of you had a wonderful Christmas holiday as we fast approach 2018. And this episode, episode number 35, is the last podcast of 2017 for the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, and it's all about the hardwood. Now, the lady whose voice you heard at the very beginning of the show was the head coach of one of the top women's basketball teams in the country. The UCLA Bruins are ranked number 11 in the AP poll right now, and Corey Close is the head coach of the UCLA women's basketball team, and we got a chance to sit down with her one-on-one to talk about her team, a team that defeated then number three Baylor uh, last month before losing a fairly close contest to the number one team of the country, the Yukon Huskies. And I asked Corey Close what she learned about her team after those two games, which were back-to-back in a span of three days, defeating number three Baylor and then losing to number one Yukon. both of those games happening in Los Angeles. I also asked her about some of the star players that she has on her team, including point guard Jordan Canada, a double-double threat in terms of points and assists every time she walks out onto the floor. And I also got a chance to talk about what she learned from John Wooden. Yes, the John Wooden. And uh, Corey Close was an assistant coach at UCLA not too long after her playing days at UC Santa Barbara. And she actually got a few chances to talk with and gain some wisdom from the wizard of Westwood. So uh, it was very fascinating to hear what she got to learn uh, from John Wooden as well. So that is our first interview. Corey close. Our second interview is with Jared Weiss of USA today, Celtics wire and CLNS media. He covers the Boston Celtics and the Boston Celtics for the most part, have been a house of fire uh, in this Eastern Conference to begin the season. Uh, we were in Boston on Christmas Day for the Christmas Day game between the Boston Celtics and Washington Wizards, a game that the Wizards did win 111-103, so Boston's record dropping to 27-10. and uh, Going into that game, the best record and winning percentage in the Eastern Conference, and I talked with Jared about uh, all things Boston Celtics, including how they coped with the emotional jolt that was Gordon Hayward breaking his ankle five minutes into his regular season debut as a Boston Celtic, as well as Kyrie Irving, the other huge addition in the offseason for the Boston Celtics and what he has brought to the Boston Celtics, and maybe uh, a couple of things that Jared might not have known about Kyrie Irving until he got over to the Boston Celtics. And Jared, a person who uh, covers the Boston Celtics uh, regularly and is a 
knowledgeable, knowledgeable NBA fan and NBA scribe, uh, joins us to talk about all things Boston Celtics. So Jared Weiss is our second interview, our first interview coming up in a few seconds, the head coach of the UCLA women's basketball team, Corey Close. And to begin the conversation with Corey Close, I asked her to go back 25 years. Why did I do that? Well, the answer is coming in about 20 seconds. So, Corey Close, our first interview. Then after that, Jared Weiss of USA Today, Celtics Wire, and CLNS Media. So sit back, relax, enjoy the podcast. I know you will. And we will see you at the very end of the show. For the second consecutive season, the team predicted in the preseason to win the Pac-12 in women's basketball, arguably and almost inarguably the best basketball conference in women's college basketball, are the UCLA Bruins. And I'm pleased to be joined by the head coach of the UCLA Bruins, Corey Close. And uh, Corey, thank you so very much for the uh, time. And before we talk about the here and now, I'm going to have you jump into the time machine with me, so I hope you don't mind. Um, My first memory of yourself and UCSB, University of Cal Santa Barbara, 1992, when you were so close to defeating the eventual national champions that year, uh, the Stanford Cardinal. Um, And I think that was kind of like the wackiest year in terms of the Final Four. I think it was uh, Western Kentucky made the final, uh, Southwest Missouri State made the Final Four as well, along with Virginia uh, and Stanford. What do you remember most? And I think that was Stanford's toughest game outside of Virginia. What was, what do you remember most about being a player in California at UCSB playing against Tara Vanderveer and almost beating uh, a powerhouse in Stanford. Well, there's so many layers to that. I grew up outside the Bay Area. I uh, I went to her camp. One of the reasons I think I became a Division One athlete is her assistant, Julie Plank, was the only one to tell me I could play Division One basketball. Everyone else told me I was too short and too slow. And so here I am going back to the place in which, um, you know, really taught me a lot and that I look up to as a little girl and that I would watch on TV so here I was getting to play there um, but you know it was a crazy game we ended up having to finish the game with four players and uh, it, it fouls yeah, yeah fouls and so we only had four players out there to finish the game and it was still a really close game we even had a chance to win uh, even with four players but um, you know it was a turning point for it really wasn't about me it was about uh, the joy of building something that hadn't been done at UC Santa Barbara and Mark French has just done a masterful job and he's taught me so much but and that was really the turnaround year and uh, so it was a real honor to be a part of that a small piece and you know i was just lucky to be on the court uh you are very active uh on the sidelines you're very encouraging you gotta stalk the sidelines uh, uh up and down of all of your personal characteristics uh, that you would describe yourself uh which of those personal characteristics rubs off on your ucla teams or at least this ucla team uh the most well i don't know you might have to ask them that question <laughs> they would uh, they would love for me to probably not stalk the sidelines as much as i do i know my assistant coaches would say that they wish I wouldn't, but um, you know, I think I'm, I'm I really am passionate about the game, and I'm really driven towards excellence. And I believe every every possession is an opportunity to compete and to grow and to improve and to give to your team and to make a play for someone else. And and I'm very driven and passionate about that because I I think that that's if you want to become an elite basketball program that competes for championships, I think that's what you need. But I also think that's what you need to be successful in life and to have a contented life is to do something bigger than yourself, but to give everything you've got towards excellence and uh, you know so I, I, my hope is that that rubs off on our team uh, being a teacher and that's what I consider myself as a teacher you never know 
and you're constantly moving the pieces and trying to connect with your students um, to create create the biggest impact that you can. And, and I have an amazing staff. You know, the best thing I've done since being at UCLA is hire a staff that's a whole lot smarter than me. And they really are spectacular. So um, I think they make me look good. Uh, Corey Close, head coach of the UCLA Brewers women's basketball team, currently number 11 uh, in the AP poll. And just last month in November, you had a tough two-game stretch in a span of three days. You defeated the then number three team, uh, the Baylor Bears, and then turned around and played UConn for the second time in about eight months uh, and came up short in that game. Um, I know you get a chance to learn something about your team after every game. But what did you learn about your team specifically by beating the Bears and turning around and playing UConn competitively but coming up short? Was there something you could wean from those two games in such a short span of time? Well, I think against Baylor, I learned that our players really do expect to be in the elite. Uh, I remember after the game, um, they were just so calm. And I think they expected to go in and win that game. And they uh, they focused on it. I think they pro- proved to themselves how important focus is. Um, because I think they they just, they just went they really expected to go in. They knew the game plan. They executed the game plan and, and expected to make it happen. And they did. Um, so I think that taught me a lot at that point. Um, the UConn game, uh, you know, is just is so... Is, they do the inches better than anyone else. That's really the reality. And so they cut harder. They play great defense. They communicate more. I mean, you know, you can't tell Jordan, hey, uh, sorry, you're playing so many minutes. Well, they had three players that played 40 minutes. Like, you just, it's a frame of mind. It's a mindset um, of how hard you have to go, how focused you have to be, how consistently you have to communicate. And they set that standard. And I think as much as um, we didn't like it, it showed that there's still a gap between our standards and what it takes to be at that kind of level and I think it forces you to hold up a mirror to yourself and I'm hoping that that mirror taught us some really important lessons and usually our ears are a bit a little more open and our hearts a little softer and coaches included and so I think it's a it's just always a learning experience that this is the standard and you got even from watching them in warm-ups I mean I've well, I've videotaped them warming up and and we've changed our warm-ups as a result because I think that um, you know they just do everything the way they want to do it in a game and I think that's the lesson that we learned I guess Really quickly, what's the biggest change that you made in your warm-ups or pregame routine after watching, I guess, UConn specifically? I think earlier in my career, but, you know, most recently, I think I was uh, a little bit afraid to wear kids out. And I think now I'm like, let's get our second wind in warm-ups and let's go for it. Let's do everything at a pace that we need to have um, moving forward. And I think that I sort of took off the reins and said, let's go to work. You mentioned the amazing staff that you've assembled uh, at UCLA and mentioning Baylor, mentioning UConn, of course, Kim Mulkey, Gino Ariema are on the tips of tongues of casual women's basketball fans. But uh, for years, you were an assistant coach under another amazing uh, women's basketball coach in Sue Semrau that may not get as much uh, love from casual fans, but has done such an amazing job in the ACC at Florida State. Um, What do you remember most about being uh, an assistant coach under Sue Semrau and what are the lasting uh, images and impressions of Sue on you? Well, you don't have enough time for me to tell you all the things that I learned from Coach Sue. Um, you know, she taught me how to um, be really elite, but also be balanced in life. Um, she taught me how to really always keep the care of the kids as the paramount focus. Um, she's in this for all the right reasons, and she just cares so sincerely about the people around her. Um, I just would never have been ready for this job at UCLA if I hadn't worked under Coach Sue. Um, and I've worked under three great people, and and as well as been mentored by John Wooden, and I'm just... 
uh, you know, I'm just so thankful for that. But Coach Sue really, really set the stage for me to be able to have this job. I want to get to Coach Wooden at the end of this uh, uh, podcast. Again, uh, Corey Close, head coach of the UCLA Bruins, uh, joining me, uh, watching your team against Fordham here today. We're here in New York City. Uh, you apply a lot of pressure on defense. You have almost like a 2-2-1 pressure, and then you pressure a lot of times when you cr- when the opponent crosses a half court. Uh, where did you mold your style of game from, and what philosophy do you want uh, when you have your teams come, go out onto the court? Well, I think it's not just really what I want to do. It's that um, this is the personality of this particular team. I think my job is somewhat to adjust to my personnel. I'm always going to be someone who uh, it's going to be built on defense and rebounding first. And, uh, you know, I love player development. So those are probably the three pillars of our program is uh, player development, defense, and rebounding. But I think this year's team, I had more depth. Um, we have more quickness and versatility. Uh, we're able to switch more screens. So we have made a huge – this is the most I've ever pressed in my career. But I think it's really a credit to the players that we have, the selflessness that we have, that we're able to put a lot of people in and rotate people through. Um, but I think it was me adjusting to our personnel. And Shannon Perry has been really pushing me, and so I challenged her to research how what kind of presses would be really fit our players best over the summer, and she did that. And, and it's just been a really big commitment. I don't think we're a very, as cerebral as a team as I sometimes would like us, to be honestly. Um, but I think it puts us in the best position when we can play fast, we can spread the floor and get points off our defense. Uh, playing in the Pac-12, uh, it's such a meat grinder. Wow. <laughs> All right, I talked with Mike Neighbors mm-hmm. when he was still at the uh, University mm-hmm. of Washington. He's a big analytical mm-hmm. guy. Thought that there's a chance that maybe nine, ten teams yeah. uh, could make uh, the uh, NCAA tournament last year, and that could still be the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, there was a time, and especially when you were growing up, yeah. where the center of women's college basketball was out west uh, from Ann Myers at UCLA, uh, Cheryl Miller at USC, uh, you know, uh, Cynthia Cooper Cooper at USC, and then even recently, now, Washington making the Final Four, Oregon State uh, making the Final Four. Do you see now, I know UConn is, uh, yeah, I mean, they are the Giants. Uh, Do you see almost a shift again where uh, the center of women's college basketball may not necessarily be SEC or the Northeast, but out west again? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, and I give Mike Neighbors some credit in that. I think he had some influence. He did a lot of uh, scheduling analytics for us as coaches. We got together five years ago, I think it was, and said, hey, if we want to change from being last in the Power Five to first, this is what we got to commit to doing. And we really put the needs of the conference above our individual needs, and we executed our plan And as a coaching staff. And so uh, I really, it's been amazing. And I think the other big formidable thing is the Pac-12 networks. Um, we've needed to have more exposure and to have the most amount of linear TV games on TV of any conference in the country. That's been a huge thing because, you know, recruits want to have their families be able to see them play. And I think that's been a huge piece about keeping recruits home, keeping the Kelsey Plums home, keeping the Jordan Canada's home, th- keeping the, you know, Sabrina Ionescu's home. Um, I think that's really, really important. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of people who have contributed to this. But I think, number one, you can't do it without players. So yes. we had to keep those recruits home. But the coaches in the Pac-12 are amazing. I know that they make me better every time, that I've got to make a game adjustments, whether be halftime or the second time around or whatever it is they really do a great job so i think the competition just makes us rise up every single game just a couple more questions for our Corey close head coach of the ucla bruins uh women's basketball team you mentioned players um and you have players and uh, and i don't want to disrespect so many of the other players that make your team the team that is ranked uh that has been ranked in the top 10 uh but jordan canada uh is a double double threat every time she takes the court in terms of points and assists and Mo- monique billings as well as a terror inside just describe 
describe those two players and what makes those players special and what makes your team, given your players, a team that is a threat? Well, I think Monique Billings is, um, she's sort of everything I would have dreamed she would become. You know, she really was a great athlete. We called her a pogo stick when she first came in, but she had very little knowledge of the game, uh, very little skill. And to her credit, she has just worked and worked and worked. And so to watch her affect the game on the defensive end, to be able to switch on screens and keep smaller guards in front, to get 8 to 10 points on rim runs or rim posts uh, every time, her offensive rebounding percentages are ridiculous. I mean, I, I think I was most proud. I challenged her, and I didn't really think she could do it. At USA Basketball Trials this summer for U23s, I said you need to lead both teams on rebounding every single uh, game and scrimmage that you play. And I also think you need to also lead the team in blocks and deflections. And there wasn't a game that she didn't do that. And I just think she's just, she's even, I don't even think she's close to her potential. I think she's going to be a better pro than she is a college player. She's not going to face as many double teams and the other things you can do. Her versatility defensively is going to come to bear more. Um, and then, secondly, Jordan Canada. Jordan Canada, um, you mentioned, you know, her double-double potential. You mentioned her assists. People mentioned her scoring. People mentioned her uh, just ability to, on so many skilled areas. But people don't realize, number one, how how mentally tough she is, and number two, how good her defense is. I don't care if you have to switch and she's on a 6'4 person. She will find a way to get a deflection and you will not get the ball. I mean, her competitive nature, her global perspective of the game, and her defense is really what I think make her elite. And her balance. I don't think there may be better scores. Kelsey Mitchell's probably a better scorer than Jordan Canada is. There's probably other people maybe that pass it as well. But I don't think there's a point guard in the country that's as complete as she is, both skillfully, defensively, and mentally. Uh, a lot of college basketball fans have either read John Wooden's books or know about the Pyramid of Success or maybe when they watch men's uh, college basketball, listen to Bill Walton, all right, just spout out all the things John Wooden had said to him. But you are uh, someone who, when you started your coaching career, um, actually got to uh, talk with, speak with, uh, and you sought out, I believe, uh, Coach Wooden. What was that experience like just hearing from the best uh, to ever uh, grace a college basketball court. Yeah, I was actually feeling that way. Last night, I, Steve Lavin is actually the one who uh, introduced me to Coach Wooden and took me there for the first time to his home in Encino. And Lavin was announcing our men's game, and he was telling stories about Coach Wooden on the air last night, and it just brought me back to memory lane a little bit. Um, you know, when Gino was there with his team, I wished Coach Wooden was still alive. I wish they could have more of a conversation. I was thinking about that, and obviously the history that they've made and, and how enjoyable. I just, it's like I want to just share them with more people. I, I had a chance to be have consistent relationship with him for 15 years and there's not a day that doesn't go by that I don't recall one of those conversations or apply one of those things to our practices or you know even just how we treat our the, the janitors in our building, the people, the support staff, the bus drivers, how we clean locker rooms. I mean it's not even how we do things on the court that's been affected by his teachings but it's how we do things off the court, the way we write thank you notes and the little things that um, he used to have his guys because he didn't really care that they played professional basketball. He cared that they were prepared young men and as a result of them being 
being really well-prepared young men, they were a pretty darn good basketball team. Um, but I'm so grateful not only for the time of Coach Wooden, but I'm also grateful to his family that shared him so graciously. And even to this day, Nan and Jim um, are big supporters, and Nan invites me to the um, Global Leadership Wooden Awards and uh, the Wooden Awards for College Basketball every year, and I go as her guest. And uh, I'm just so grateful to have had that incredible experience. And I'm just like a sponge, and I'm still a sponge, and I, I wouldn't be here without him. Uh, Coach Corey Close of the UCLA Bruins women's basketball team. It's been a pleasure uh, spending this time with you. Thank you so very much. Best of luck and success to you and the Bruins for the rest of this season and going forward. Well, thank you to caring about our game and telling the stories of our game, and it's been my pleasure. The pace setters in the Eastern Conference so far in the NBA are the Boston Celtics, who are now 27-10 and 10 after uh, their Christmas Day loss to the Washington Wizards. We have had the pleasure of being here at TD Garden and are here at TD Garden right now uh, after the Boston Celtics game. But despite the loss, a lot of positives uh, from the men in green in 2017 heading into 2018. And I'm pleased to be joined right now talking all things Boston Celtics with Jared Weiss of USA Today, Celtics Wire, and CLNS Media. And first of all, Jared, thank you so very much uh, for the time. Uh, for those who were kind of enamored with the Boston Celtics offseason uh, from drafting Jason Tatum or, I guess, trading away the number one pick, then drafting Jason Tatum, Gordon Hayward, Kyrie Irving as well. There was all this uh, kind of pomp and circumstance and then... Five minutes into the season, Gordon Hayward uh, with that uh, uh, nasty injury. But the Celtics since then uh, have done so well. Not that we're so surprised, but the 16-game winning streak might have been a little bit of a surprise. Um, how surprised, if any, are you given where the Boston Celtics are in the standings at 27-10 and 10, and before today, top of the Eastern Conference? Well, when I saw Jace, uh, Gordon Hayward go down, I immediately thought, well, the Celtics are going to go on a 16-game winning streak, obviously. <laughs> of course. What, what else would they do? Um, you know, so their schedule was relatively manageable when they were on that streak, and they got really lucky to be on that streak. Mm-hmm. And it got really hard the last few weeks. They've been playing. They've been in a constant state of five games and seven nights for almost like a two-week period at this point. They're finally getting through all these back-to-backs in December. Their December schedule is insane. They have to play, I think, like 18 games in December. So they, they haven't practiced in, I think, like a month or so. They maybe have one practice in the last like month and a half. So they're, as Brad Stevens calls it, they practice every night at 730, which is when they tip <laughs> off for their games. So they, they've they been really adjusting on the fly. They've had a bunch of injuries pop up. Marcus Morris came back for this Wizards game. Did not look very good. I think he kind of rushed himself back to be able to play against his brother. Yeah. But they they do a really good job of managing whatever roster is available to them. And they have good depth in role players. Not good depth in guys that can take over, which, like, how many teams have that, right? Yeah. But they, they've done a good job of putting pieces in that can fit well nicely. Terry Rogier has really stepped it up for them this year as a, you know their sixth or seventh man. Shane Larkin was even giving them some good minutes. So that's kind of how they survived getting on that wing streak and then was able to stay above water as they go through this really brutal schedule. And, you know, they're, sit, they're pretty much neck and neck at the top of the Eastern Conference now, which is not surprising. Cleveland's been going crazy. Toronto's offense is completely reinvigorated. They're probably better than both of those teams at this moment, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they are pretty consistent in their messaging, which starts with Brad Stevens. They remain consistent in how they play. And what they're trying to accomplish. Now, the effort's been waning because they've had such a brutal schedule. And there's some other non-schedule things that I think attribute to it. But they 
they should bounce out of this and go back to being like a you know, 600, 700 team as opposed to a barely 500 team like they've been in the last few weeks. And if they are that, then they're going to continue to be right at the top of the Eastern Conference. I guess of all the adjustments that the coaching staff and Brad Stevens has had to make since uh, game one of the season, of course, he had to, uh, the coaching staff had to make adjustments from the time uh, the Celtics lost game five uh, from the Eastern Conference Finals to now. But from uh, day one of the regular season to now of all the adjustments that you have mentioned or have just kind of suggested or intimated at I guess which has caught your eye the most in terms of just an adjustment that has to be made by the coaching staff or maybe a specific player filling in a role that you may not have thought he might have been able to fill until uh, right now. Well so Jason Tatum's kind of the center of the answer for both of those questions okay. so Gordon Hayward I saw a headline somewhere recently that was like breaking news Gordon Hayward was supposed to be the second ball handler for this mm-hmm. team like yeah, no, no duh. Yeah, like that was that was why he brought him in. <laughs> yeah. So they had this plan for this amazing offensive system where Hayward was the secondary ball handler, Kyrie is a ball most of the time, and Horford's the one that really facilitates most of the second half of each play that they run. And without Horford or without a Hayward, they didn't have anyone that was clearly that secondary ball handler because Jalen Brown has a lot of ball handling issues, and while he's pretty amazing at attacking the rim, he's struck, he's he's had a lot of turnover issues. Jason Tatum, they didn't. I mean, they had a pretty good idea of what to expect, but his evolution has been so rapid that they didn't really count on him being this productive and this crucial to their lineup early on. But so that's where I think it changes is that they've been able to get away with, for the most part, two guys that are really good with the ball in Kyrie and Horford. And then Marcus Smart, who, for all the issues he has offensively, he is a pretty good point guard. He's good at getting into space, using his body to shield the ball, kind of Chris Paul style, and finding ways to get the ball to guys. So he's been good with that. But really, it comes down to Kyrie and Horford are moving the ball well, and then Tatum, Jalen Brown, and whomever else they have out there with them, whether it's Smart or Rozier or one of their bigs, they've been really good about keeping the ball flowing, attacking when the defense is trying to close out onto them, and just not really getting stuck into any bad isolation play. And we did see some of that happen against Washington, because Washington really stepped their game up on Christmas. But Boston has been able to rely on Tatum and Jalen to play smart and for the most part to not commit bonehead turnovers. It's happened a little bit more lately because there's kind of been more pressure on them because of injuries and stuff like that. But their system remains solid. And that's the thing that's the most surprising because Hayward was so central to it. Now it shows that next year when, or even maybe possibly at the end of this year, when they get Hayward back and he's really moving and he looks really good, their offense is going to be way more dynamic than it is now. And it already has been, uh, since their end of their losing streak, it's really stepped up to being one of the best offenses in the league. So there's still a ton of room for them to grow. And there's really a lot of room for them just to right the ship and get to back to being more efficient as they move forward. Once again, Jared Weiss of USA Today, Celtics Wire, and CLNS Media joining us, talking all things Boston Celtics. Of course, Kyrie Irving, uh, one of the big additions uh, in the offseason. And you and I have gotten to see Kyrie Irving uh, as a visitor uh, when he was with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Uh, and now you have gotten to see him uh, on a daily basis uh, for the most part. I guess what's been the biggest surprise about uh, Kyrie and his game uh, that you might not have known uh, when you were watching and seeing Kyrie from afar uh, as a Cleveland Cavalier? So there's a few big things. There's one is he's defending with consistency and effort, and he's more aware. And when Kyrie was with the Cavaliers, 
He didn't defend that much during the regular season, but when he wanted to, he could really step it up in the playoffs. And we've seen in the finals, he's done really well against Steph Curry defensively. But he was never being really pushed and never really had the buy-in to play that way on every single possession every night. And we're seeing it so much more this year. And it's, it allowed them to have a, an elite defense for most of the year. And that's fallen off, and they're no longer number one in the league, but they're still, I think they're still in second place in defensive rating. But he has been committed. And when you have your star committed to playing two ways, that has a huge impact on the rest of the team, especially when it's a young team. And that's been huge for them. Uh, so I think that it's not about the steals and all the big plays that he makes. And, you know, he's been flying for some impressive rebounds, stuff like that. But he has been good at managing switches, trying to fight over screens when he used to just kind of die on screens. And he had a real reputation for when someone sets a screen on him, he just kind of sits out the rest of the play and waits for the ball to come back to him. We saw tonight, even in the late fourth quarter, he was still fighting over those screens, trying to chase down whether it was John Wall or whomever else he was on. He's been a lot more impressive with that. And I think that's been huge for him. So as far as offense, it took him a while to get into his rhythm. I didn't think he was really an MVP candidate until about the 20-game mark or so when he started to get a lot more efficient, a lot more comfortable in the offense, and then the offense really started to take off at that point. He's made a lot of great clutch plays. I think John Wall just called him the most clutch player in the NBA so far this year. Uh, but the big thing for him, I think, is that he's been a lot more steady, and he doesn't force the issue to score nearly as much as I think he did in Cleveland. And I think part of that is that he has the ball in his hands a lot more now. While he does play a lot off ball, he – I should say this. He might not have the ball in his hands necessarily more minutes and plays than he did when he was in Cleveland – but when he has the ball in his hands, he's more responsible for running everything as opposed to being an isolation option, you know, aside from LeBron James. And he's not, and it's not, he's like running the second unit or anything like that. He's running the whole offense. And I think it's made him more patient and a little bit more responsible. And he's been really focused on limiting his turnovers and his turnovers, his turnover rate's been really low this year. So I think those are two areas of growth where he's really, really shown me something that I hadn't seen from him in the past. But the way he's adapted to the Celtic system, he's playing very similar to the way that Isaiah Thomas was playing early last year before Thomas hit kind of a historic level in like January and February where he had two of the best months scoring the ball pretty much ever. And so I don't know if Kyrie's going to have that in him coming up here. We'll see. The schedule gets a lot easier for them. So he could go, he could go insane here. Um, but he is adjusting and adapting really fast. Uh, you mentioned the depth uh, that this team has, but not necessarily the depth in terms of uh, who can get the ball and who can create and who can score um, outside of Kyrie Irving. But uh, today, uh, seeing uh, Daniel Tice uh, score in double digits, I think, for the second game uh, in a row. <laughs> yes, and uh, Terry Rozier, who has hit clutch shots uh, going back to last year's uh, Eastern Conference semifinals against the uh, Washington Wizards. Uh and Jalen Brown as well, who's had to step up uh, in Gordon Hayward's place, and I believe is I think he's the team's second leading scorer uh, this season uh, as well. I guess which of the players that don't get as much attention, and I guess maybe even Al Horford gets thrown in this because outside of those who are more steeped in the analytics, maybe Al Horford may not be as uh, appreciated as much um, as those who get to see uh, uh, the Celtics now Horford and even back when with the Atlanta Hawks uh, and seeing Al Horford as well. I guess which of these players, I guess specifically with from the Tices to the Terry Rogiers, do you see uh, kind of expanding the role a little bit more as the season goes forward? It's those two. It's, it's Rozier. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, expanding going forward, that's actually a different question. But yeah. I'll just say, so far, yeah, Rozier and Tice have been those two 
two hidden gems for them. Yeah. Um, you know, Rogier, I remember talking to some of the people that had worked with him this offseason, and they were going crazy about him. And it was more than your usual, like, oh, we had a great offseason. It was, he was adding the things to his game that you see that he wanted to add, and he's finally getting there. And we're seeing it now more where he has, like, the crossover into a step-back jumper that people jokingly, but it's accurate, compared to Michael Jordan. Because it actually, when you watch the film, the way they move and their form looks almost identical, which is really funny. So we jokingly call him the, the <laughs> fake Michael Jordan around here. But so he, he's gotten more comfortable handling the ball and attacking through the paint. He's dunking more. I wrote a piece on Celtics Wire uh, on USA Today about this, that he, he's gotten way more fit, and he's changed the way he eats. He's changed the way he sleeps. He's changed the way that he does recovery after the games. He's really looked to guys like Al Horford for that. And it's allowed him to be way more active more consistently, and his minutes have gone way up. And he, you know, he's a little streaky when it comes to his shot going down and the scoring and stuff like that. But his effort has been really consistent, and he's been this like surprise spark on de- not surprise, but spark on defense and rebounding. The way that Smart was in the second year, and that made a huge impact on kind of elevating the team a lot, you know, more than they expected. And Rogier, who's in his third year now, right, uh, second year of playing full time because he, he literally didn't play like at all in his rookie year. Um, but in the second full year, he's showing not only is his skill set improving quickly, but he has that consistent energy that is infectious for the team. And they, they've had an issue with scoring dropping off really bad with the second unit. But I think their effort, their pace has been really good. So once the shots start falling more for them, I think that's going to make a big difference. And with Marcus Morris back, Stevens even mentioned this, something I've kind of been advocating for. He's really useful as a scorer with the second unit. As someone that they can just give the ball and he can go ISO when he needs to. We saw him do it tonight, middling results. But they're they're going to look for him to do that. And once he's able to do that effectively, it's going to make their second unit a lot better. And then I'll just say very quickly with Daniel Tice, uh, he he's really learned how to how to actively move. And when you watch him play in Europe last year, especially for the national team, he was mostly trying to set picks for guys and then run as fast as he could to the basket or run as fast as he could to like the other wing and pop up for a shot. And it was he looked like he was just kind of like running on a track. And in the NBA, things are really fluid. Uh, guys are working at all sorts of weird angles. You have to make switches really quickly. And he's learning how to do that now. And he's way more comfortable with the NBA game. And he's no longer running out of breath every single time. It's something he talked about recently. So I think he's finally finding his footing. And although he very rarely takes deep shots, he hit his, I want to say, his fifth three-pointer of the of the season tonight. Um, you know, he doesn't shoot from the outside very much, but he's been really effective hitting the glass, getting putbacks or short pick-and-rolls, stuff like that. Uh, but he's been consistent on defense. He's no longer, no longer committing ridiculous fouls. So he's kind of become a really steady bench presence for them. So when Moritz was hurt or when Baines isn't playing a lot of minutes, they've been able to go to Tyson. He's been giving them good minutes. Once again, Jared Weiss of USA Today, Celtics Wire, and CLNS Media joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And uh, I, I believe just a few days ago on a podcast, uh, uh, Daryl Morey, the uh, general manager of the Houston Rockets, kind of just admitted maybe what a lot of people have thought that, hey, I'm obsessed with, you know, beating the Warriors or getting to the Warriors level. Um, Of course, in the Eastern Conference, you know, there's the Cavaliers and there's LeBron James. Uh, Do you get any sense that, of course, the Celtics are focused on themselves? Um, And most teams will at least say on on the surface we're focused only on ourselves. Well, maybe except the Houston Rockets and Daryl Morey. Um, Do you get a sense that 
while this season is going on, this is all just a build up to uh, the Cavaliers. Maybe I know there's the uh, Toronto Raptors. I know there's the uh, Washington Wizards as well. If if and when they hit their stride, uh, uh, that'll be tough. But do you get a sense that as the Celtics are playing and concerned about themselves that they may have an eye or even like maybe a half of an eye on uh, Cleveland uh, and LeBron James as well? Yeah, they're splitting their eyes to work two different directions. I would say, yeah, one of them's looking at Cleveland. So the front office is paying attention to that. And that's kind of in the NBA. It's the front office's job. It's Daryl Morey's job. Danny Ainge and Mike Zarin. It's their job to pay attention to what everyone else is doing and set the team's timeline to fit into that. Um, you know, They don't want to sell out and get short-term good assets now if they don't think that it's worth it compared to next year when they'll be at full strength with Hayward. And they're, you know, Jalen and Jason Tatum will be developed another year. Kyrie and Horford have another year together. You know, next year's team could be literally twice as good as this year's team, the way it is so far. So, and of course, LeBron might not be in Cleveland next year. Who, who knows what's going to happen there? <laughs> no, but literally even in Cleveland, they don't know. So, um, and he, he doesn't know either. So, they, I think, are looking at this year thinking, you know, sure, we can give Cleveland a run. I mean, we've been ahead of them the whole year. There's... I mean, they're stampeding right now, and they're they've been the lead even if they lost to the Warriors on Christmas Day. I mean, otherwise they've been they won eighteen out of twenty. I think coming into that one, they've been incredible. So that I think that they might still think that they need to that they're underdogs against Cleveland, and they thought that coming into the year. And so far, what we've seen this year is just mostly that you know, their talent level is probably where they thought it was. Even if Tatum is. I would say Tatum's the only person that's like performing way above expectations coming into the year. I mean, Jalen Brown, I thought, would be doing just about what he's doing so far. So nothing has been really a surprise besides Tatum. So they thinking that, even with Hayward, we're expecting Cleveland to still be the favorite. I think now, seeing how good Tatum has been, it makes up a lot for what they lost when Hayward went down. Um, and it still makes them competitive, but Cleveland is probably always going to be the favorite. And they're, I'm sure their front office and their coaching staff is looking at it and they're thinking, we need to overachieve in order to get by Cleveland. Not to mention Cleveland has been doing all this without Isaiah Thomas, yes. who's going to be coming back any day now, hopefully coming back for the, uh, for the game against the Celtics uh, on January 3rd, I want to say. So, you know, that's going to change the equation a lot, and who knows, Cleveland might become unstoppable at that point. But the Warriors are all, will always be exposed by injury. So they have been healthy, but there's always that vulnerability that they can get hurt. And if they do get hurt, then they're mortal. And there's no reason to completely toss out the like toss out the idea that you could compete because you're thinking they won't get hurt and then there's no way you have a chance. You always got to make a run based on that hope. But it would, t- it would take something substantial, obviously, to make them vulnerable. And Boston, they're just gonna they're gonna keep moving forward with what they have now, and they might make some small moves at the deadline, use their designated player exception that allows them to bring another good player. So they might make some small moves, but I don't think they're gonna do anything drastic to try to like leapfrog Cleveland and try to really take it to Golden State because they're always gonna have their eyes on next year, which is the chance that they have to really really be at full strength and really make a run at it. A chance that Isaiah Thomas comes back from his hip injury and surgery against the Boston Celtics in the new year. That is amazing. That could be a whole different uh, podcast in itself. But I do want to thank you, uh, Jared Weiss of USA Today, Celtics Wire. And I had to return the favor from last year when I appeared uh, with you uh, as well, Jared. Thank you so very much for the time. Thank you so very much for the knowledge on the Boston Celtics and the NBA. And hopefully uh, we get a chance to uh, catch up very soon. It's good to see you again, man.
Our sincere thanks to both Jared Weiss of USA Today Celtics Wire, as well as the head coach of the UCLA women's basketball team, Corey Close, for making episode number 35 a special episode of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. It's also the last episode of 2017 for the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Our next podcast will be in 2018. And at some point this year, in 2017, not exactly sure when, I have to look it up, We celebrated five years of a lot of sports talk. Five years ago, we initially launched the website, alotofsportstalk.com. And for all the people who visit the site, liked our stories, criticized our stories, uh, spread the word about a lot of sports talk, and all the people who have contributed to a lot of sports talk as well, I thank each and every single person one of you. Thank you so very much for making a lot of sports talk uh, the business and organization uh, that it is. I absolutely positively could not have been able to lift a lot of sports talk uh, from literally our mother's kitchen uh, when we initially launched the website. That's where we pressed launch uh, to this point right now, five years. Uh, Thank you so very much for everybody who has listened commented, contributed, uh, sent in stories, sent in story ideas. Uh, It's been a great five years, and um, here's to another five years, at least another five years uh, for a lot of sports talk. So again, head to the website, alotofsportstalk.com. What will you see there? You'll see a lot of coverage of the NBA. We are at Wizards games and Philadelphia 76ers games, so national coverage of the NBA. We have coverage of the National Hockey League. Uh, We will have coverage of the National Women's Hockey League as well, and also college basketball, men's and women's college basketball. We will have you covered throughout this season up until and through uh, March Madness and into uh, the Final Four, the men's and women's Final Four. That'll take place in April. So episode number 36 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast will come in 2018, January of 2018. Until then, have yourself a very, very happy new year. It's been fun, and uh, we will see you next year on episode number 36 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Thank you so very much for your time. My name is Adeshina Koiki, and we will catch you very, very soon. Or I can make that kind of stupid joke. We'll see you next year. You know why? Because we will see you next year. The next time we see you will be next year. Thank you so very much. Adeshina Koiki, signing out. You take care.